the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on another edition. And uh, again, follow us, danproftshow.com, on social media, at Dan Prof Show on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me, at Dan Proft, on Twitter. And uh, let's start today, all things coronavirus-related. President uh, Trump's uh, remarks yesterday, uh, and as anticipated with the Dow Futures overnight, another hammering on Wall Street as uh, trading halted with the market opening down more than 7%, one of the circuit breakers tripped for the second time in two days. Here's what President Trump had to say last night in his remarks about what he is going to do to provide uh, economic relief from the impacts of coronavirus. To ensure that working Americans impacted by the virus can stay home without fear of financial hardship, I will soon be taking emergency action, which is unprecedented, to provide financial relief. This will be targeted for workers who are ill, quarantined, or caring for others due to coronavirus. I will be asking Congress to take legislative action to extend this relief. He also uh, proposed uh, efforts to increase liquidity in the market, uh, both with SBA loans and uh, tax payment deferral. This is not a financial crisis. This is just a temporary moment of time that we will overcome together as a nation and as a world. However, to provide extra support for American workers, families, and businesses, tonight I am announcing the following additional actions. I am instructing the Small Business Administration to exercise available authority to provide capital and liquidity to firms affected by the coronavirus. Effective immediately, the SBA will begin providing economic loans in affected states and territories. These low-interest loans will help small businesses overcome temporary economic disruptions caused by the virus. To this end, I am asking Congress to increase funding for this program by an additional $50 billion. Using emergency authority, I will be instructing the Treasury Department to defer tax payments without interest or penalties for certain individuals and businesses negatively impacted. This action will provide more than $200 billion of additional liquidity to the economy. Finally, I am calling on Congress to provide Americans with immediate payroll tax relief. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Fox Business regular Scott the Cow Guy, Shalady. Scott, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Uh, Well, why don't we start with... uh 
The more of the bloodletting on Wall Street today, uh, this against the backdrop also of the CME announcing yesterday that it was closing its Chicago, its trading floor in Chicago as a precaution to uh, coronavirus as well. Uh, Give us uh, your reaction to the president saying it's not a financial crisis. We'll get through this. Uh, But uh, the hammering continues. But it's because it's not a financial crisis. That's the problem. And we're going to have these central banks, ours included, that want to throw money at the or they think the money is a solution or some sort of fiscal remedy when it's a viral problem. And so <laughs> it's like we're locked in a closet with the lights off and we keep getting food and water shoved under the door, but we can't see it to eat it or drink it. You know, we need the lights to be turned on. And that's the unknown about the virus. So look, and as long as we've got the CDC and those in the know telling us the way to combat this, it's just like you would combat the flu. We've just kind of ratchet down hysteria because now it's like if you're not acting hysterical, it means you don't care. And the problem is, is there's some unintended consequences from you acting hysterical. Because I'll tell you right now, there's going to be far greater economic damage done from the hysteria than there ever was done by the virus. Now, uh, President Trump um, also suggesting those measures you heard, uh, you know, 50 billion more uh, in terms of SBA loans, tax deferment, payroll tax. Any of those uh, measures uh, judicious at this time? Well, I mean, if that's going to get Mr. and Mrs. Smith out of their house to go have dinner at Chinatown, I'm all for it. But You sound the skeptical. Is, yeah. Yeah. It's, the problem is, is we're fighting, you know, we've taken a knife to a gunfight and it's just not going to work out. So we have to, the best way I can say it is this, is 1840s, I don't know if you've heard about this guy, Dr. William Farr, F-A-R-R, but he's basically said all viruses around a bell curve, right? So they start off slow, they ramp up very quickly, they plateau, and then they come down the other side of the bell curve. China's on the other side of their bell curve. Their number of cases is dwindling per day. We'll probably get there between 45 and 50 days after China did, so that puts us at the end of April, beginning of May, when people start to see a decline, hopefully. Uh, up until then, the markets might figure that out between you know beginning of April, maybe. But we're not going to be able to solve this with money. It has to be psychological. It has to be people willing to go back out to the NBA basketball games when they reopen or go, go out to the, you know, the NCAA basketball games or baseball or whatever sport is in vogue. And that's the problem. We're, we're trying to fight this thing with, you know, we don't have any common sense. It's a, we're fiscally fighting something that's really only psychological. And, and it's one thing for, you know, uh, classes at college to be canceled and we'll just do it online and some of the other measures that have been taken with respect to postponing major gatherings. It's another thing, though, when the president announces, I think, to the surprise of many, that there's a travel ban to EU countries for 30 days. And that also includes the transport back and forth of goods. And so that has a real economic impact. Did, did, did you think that helped to fuel the sell-off today? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think he could have been better in his delivery, number one, and some of those things might have been uh, probably a little bit better thought out because there was a ton of confusion la- last night or just after he got done talking about it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's absolutely part of, part of the sell-off. And, again, we didn't come out with any clarity about the virus. There was no admission about here's where we're at, here's where we think it's going to go, here's how we're going to combat it. You know, maybe those types of plans – would have been better too but you know i tell you what there's going to be again some big time unintended consequences from this because you know, i've got nieces and nephews that go to university right now and hey well these colleges are going to wake up or university is going to wake up one morning and go oh my gosh we're, we're we're running just fine sending all these things online to yes the kids. yes how are we going to make money with our meal plan and our you know 
in our room and board, our room, our rooms. I mean, that's they, there's going to be some people that should be quaking in their boots right now because of this, and they have no idea what's coming around the corner, economically speaking. Well, and also too, uh, we're likely per, perhaps in April to learn that uh, uh, we are starting to see a tick up in unemployment uh, per March. Uh, there's stories about. Port of Los Angeles, 145 drivers being laid off. Obviously, what's happening to the cruise industry, to airlines, hotels, travel agencies, event companies, uh, perhaps seeing some layoffs in March and into April that uh, uh, fuel more skepticism and uh, and perhaps what make good on some of the predictions on the street right now uh, that uh, it's more likely than not to see a recession in 2020. Well, I mean, you're right on. The, you're right on. I mean, the three things that we're going to be looking at inside this industry: number one, our jobless numbers every Thursday. Who's are they laying people off? Number two, consumer confidence. How is the consumer feeling about all this? And number three, the number of new infections. Those are the three big things because, you know, I saw a very interesting headline this morning when I came in that said there will be more bankruptcies over this in the U.S. than the number of deaths. Think about that. Uh, individual bankruptcies as well as yes. uh, bankruptcies in particular sectors like energy. Yes, individual and, and sector-wise. So so what's the advice in council as this continues? I mean, you know, it's a, where do you find a bottom? And and you're trying to find a bottom not based on, on uh, market fundamentals or economics. You're based on, like, how to predict what the, when the American psyche is going to turn. When, when we start to see the number of uh, daily... In, uh, infections start to tick lower and we come down the other side of that bell curve, I think it'll be a huge deal, or at least plateau. Maybe the markets will kind of figure that out when we plateau, but right now, I mean, there's no there's no reason I want to get in the pool and play to right now because it's just, you, you've never, you know, have no idea uh, what's going on. So this is all motive. The, the trading world is all fundamental or technical. Um, this isn't something that anybody wants to get involved with unless they have to, and that's never a good thing. So most people should stay away. Again, more unintended consequences besides the bankruptcies are the poor, unfortunate folk that need to retire in the next six months. You know, this is going to another big impact on those people. So the hysteria doesn't lead to anything really that good. Uh, just because you're not hysterical doesn't mean you don't care. But we need a measured, calm response to this, and I think that would have been much better than chaining up everybody's feelings because of some Chinese coronavirus that we don't know much about. And you're suggesting that uh, the hysteria is it may subside by, say, the end of April if it follows the bell curve history of viruses, as you were describing. But uh, the impacts uh, will be it's not just going to be a rubber band that springs back the market, the employment picture. The impacts will be, uh, you know, felt for some time to come. Yeah, here's the conversation you're going to be having next year this time. Hey, do you remember the coronavirus? Hey, do you remember when we used to have to go to class to learn? I mean, that's that's what it's going to be. He is Scott Shalady, Fox Business uh, regular Scott the Cowguy Shalady. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and building off our conversation with scott shalady on the economic impact of coronavirus as uh, markets are roiled again today 
uh, turning to the public health piece of it and President Trump addressing that in his uh, national speech yesterday, talking first about what the administration has done to present and then getting to what it plans to do going forward, which we mentioned a little bit in our conversation with, uh, with a shalady. But first, what the administration has done, providing that context, that foundation. Our team is the best anywhere in the world. At the very start of the outbreak, we instituted sweeping travel restrictions on China and put in place the first federally mandated quarantine in over 50 years. We declared a public health emergency and issued the highest level of travel warning on other countries as the virus spread its horrible infection. And taking early, intense action, we have seen dramatically fewer cases of the virus in the United States than are now present in Europe. And then the president went on to talk about uh, the 30-day travel ban to EU, to talk, uh, excluding UK, of course, talk about his conversations with healthcare, health insurance companies, uh, waiving uh, co-pays for co- coronavirus-related treatments, uh, the meetings that are upcoming, more meetings with Big Pharma in terms of the development of antiviral treatments and ultimately the pursuit of a vaccine you know, on, akin to the, the flu shot. That obviously a longer term play. Uh, the, so the, covering a lot of ground there and uh, what we see finally, too, and I, I would argue this is a bit delayed. There could have been more alacrity shown by the administration in pursuing relieving those bottlenecks at CDC and FDA, those regulatory bottlenecks in terms of getting testing kits out, as well as allowing for laboratory developed tests at the local Healthcare at the local level with respect to healthcare providers. We're starting to see some of the benefits of those pressures finally being relieved, the regulatory ones. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic, a laboratory developed test that uh, turns around results in eight hours as opposed to the two to three days it was taking when everything was centralized at CDC. Uh, Colorado uh, opening the first drive up COVID 19 testing facility in Denver, which is free of charge. So we from uh, just uh, our conversation yesterday to the reports today, the number of Americans that have been tested now has more than uh, doubled. And that's good news. Uh, more testing more quickly. We're a little, it seems to me, a little still behind the curve in terms of the amount of Americans who've been tested. And, of course, the more testing, like, for example, uh, uh, high-profile people, Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson, test positive in Australia, uh, two Utah jazz players test positive, And that was the spark that led Adam Silver to uh, shut down the NBA for the foreseeable future, shut down NBA games, suspend the NBA season at present. And then I think Adam Silver got in a spaceship and flew back to his home planet. Uh, but I digress. And the re- and so the response to all this last night, the response to the uh, substantive economic proposals, which need to be debated, uh, and which, uh, I, you know, in, in large measure, I'm, a, I'm uncomfortable with per our conversation with Scott Shalady, because it's completely unclear that they, this will have any sort of palliative impact. And so it's just sort of doing something to be seen as doing something rather than doing the right some things. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, the uh, public health matter. And uh, trying to be measured and restrained but as aggressive as we can be with the knowledge that we possess while we pursue knowledge we don't possess. That's where this should be. Instead, what you get from the melodramatists 
uh, in the D.C. press corps, particularly those that are openly hostile to the Trump administration, no matter what is done or not done, is talk of style, woke criticisms about uh, terming the virus in the same way the New York Times reported it not so long ago, the Wuhan virus. New York Times reporting called it the Wuhan virus. And um, uh, just the, the sort of nonsense that is uh, difficult to imagine. So, for example, uh, on CNN, after the president's speech last night, you had Jim Acosta and Fredo talking about uh, the word foreign. Uh, the president referred to the coronavirus as a, quote, foreign virus. Uh, that, that, I think, was interesting because, as I was talking to sources earlier this evening, one of the points that the president wanted to make tonight, wanted to get across to Americans, is that this virus did not start here, uh, but that they're dealing with it. Now, why the president would uh, go as far as to describe it as a foreign virus, that is something we'll also be asking mm-hmm. questions about. But it, it should be pointed out that Stephen Miller, uh, who is a, an immigration hardliner who advises the president, is uh, one of his top domestic policy advisors and speechwriters, right. uh, was a driving force in writing this speech. And I right. think it's going to Smack, uh, it's going to come across to a lot of Americans as smacking of uh, xenophobia, uh, right. to use that kind of term in the speech, Chris. Well, look, sometimes we can answer the questions and so, the answer. And uh, oftentimes you can't, at least not with the correct answer. Yeah, xenophobic, referring to it as foreign. Again, New York Times report called it the Wuhan virus in its reporting. Also, apparently Chinese President Xi Jinping is also a Chinese xenophobe. That's odd. February 3rd speech before the Chinese Communist Politburo. Quote, after the outbreak of the new coronavirus pneumonia in Wuhan on Jan 7, when I presided over a meeting of the Standing Committee of the Political Bureau of the CPC Central Committee, I made a request for the prevention and control of the new coronavirus pneumonia. President Xi said that. The new coronavirus pneumonia in Wuhan. Hmm. That comes very close to xenophobia, doesn't it, by CNN standards? Ilhan Omar. <laughs> Virus uh, knows no nationality in criticizing the reference to coronavirus as the Wuhan virus or as the Chinese uh, virus or as foreign. Some good replies by uh, on Twitter by uh, Ted Cruz, as well as Dan Crenshaw, congressman from Texas, Ted Cruz, senator from Texas. This is still, replying to Omar. Viruses don't have nationalities. That's what she tweeted. This is racist. Ted Cruz, this is silly. What's the origin of these pathogens? West Nile virus, Ebola, Spanish flu German measles, also xenophobic monikers. Rather than using crisis to channel woke anger, we should come together to protect public health and stop the spread of a global pandemic made worse by Chinese government obfuscation. Uh, Yeah. Dan Crenshaw, what dumb governance looks like. Identify an issue we all agree is a problem. Step one. Step two, politicize the issue and blame it on Trump. Step three, encourage public panic. Step four, when all else fails, get woke and call Republicans racist. Well, that's what you got from Omar. That's what you got from her socialist Spice Girl bandmate, AOC. Honestly, it sounds almost so silly to say, but there's a lot of restaurants that are feeling the pain of racism, uh, where people are literally not patroning Chinese restaurants. Patroning. Um, They're not patroning Asian restaurants because of just straight up racism around the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, Mm -hmm. If you don't order the Mushu pork, then you're a racist. That's the big takeaway from this uh, global pandemic. Whew. Meanwhile, those two socialist Spice Girls and uh, the other Dem socialist hacks using this as an opportunity to you know, prosecute their woke politics. Are actually promulgating Chinese communist agitprop. 
the Chinese communists for the last month. Uh, uh, we'll talk about this with Gordon Chang at uh, the top of the next hour. Chinese communists for the last month have been prop- uh, been uh, promoting the idea that the coronavirus originated in America and has been spread by America. And uh, you got AOC and Ilhan Omar and their ilk running interference for the Chinese communists. I guess it stands to the reason. I guess that's where we're at in our politics in this country. That's certainly where the Democrat Socialist Party is. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Thanks for joining us. We want to continue our discussion of coronavirus, you know, doing something a little bit different than uh, most of the uh, cable networks that uh, have a, a disposition antagonist to the administration do. We try to bring on experts who actually know something about what they're talking about rather than politicians to uh, take pot shots at at other politicians. So uh, yesterday, Dr. Tony Fauci, who is uh, the CDC's top infectious disease expert, testified before the House Oversight Committee about the, and he was asked, of course, about the lethality of coronavirus. What do we know at this point, even though we continue to have infectious disease experts, all kinds that we've spoken with and that you've probably seen on other shows too, that say we don't have a denominator. We have two problems. One is you can't trust the numbers coming out of China. Number two, we don't have a denominator. So how do you... Uh, extrapolate lethality rates uh, without a denominator. And uh, Anthony Fauci offered uh, one interpretation of the data such that we have at this point. Fauci, can you, by way of comparison, briefly explain how does COVID-19 compare to other previous health situations, SARS, H1N1, uh, things like that? Sure, sir. Thank you for the question. Well, SARS was also a coronavirus in 2002. It infected 8,000 people, and it killed about 775. It had a mortality of about 9 to 10%. So that's only 8,000 people. In about a year, in the two and a half months that we've had this coronavirus, as you know, we now have multiple multiples of that. So it clearly is not as lethal, and I'll get to the lethality in a moment, but it certainly spreads better. Probably for the practical understanding of the American people, the seasonal flu that we deal with every year has a mortality of 0.1%. The stated mortality overall of this, when you look at all the data, including China, is about 3%. It first started off as two and now three. I think if you count all the cases of minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic infection, that probably brings the mortality rate down to somewhere around 1%, which means it is 10 times more lethal than the seasonal flu. I think that's something that people can get their arms around and understand. Well, we could get their arms around and understand it, except that the D.C. press corps takes that headline and runs with it to induce hysteria. Ten times more deadly than the flu. You know, killer virus and the chirons and the music. Uh, so even if it was 10 times, you're still talking about 1% of those infected. And frankly, it's uh, a little bit more complicated than that, as Dr. Fauci knows. There was this briefing that was had, uh, had on Capitol Hill 
and uh, some of the notes got around uh, the things that were included in this briefing of policymakers. Uh, 80% of those who contacted, okay, they'll just feel bad, get, right. get some Nike, will be okay. 20% face trouble, but then you have to go through the different age and medical status cohorts. Young children are fine but can be carriers. This is the briefing. People in their 20s to 40s, fine. In the 50s, 1% mortality. 60s, 1.5% mortality. 70s, 5% mortality. 80s, 15% mortality. And then as we talked about with Gordon Chang, uh, part of this is based on a belief in the numbers coming out of China that half of those who died in China, which represent uh, 75% of all deaths from coronavirus so far, at least as reported, you know, had some underlying conditions. Right. And so I, I, we have a little bit of confirmation bias going on in a couple of different directions based on, in part, uh, some people, their disposition towards the Trump administration. And so I don't want to understate it or overstate it. And it just seems that um, we're in this 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 game of trying to pinpoint the numbers to get, and arguing about is it two tenths of a percent? Why not? We're over extrapolating from limited data, some of which we don't trust. Why not just hold off and focus on the mitigation aspect of it, the containment and mitigation aspects of it, and potentially some of the what you're going to do with the uh, to to address the economic consequences. When we come back, we'll uh, usher in an expert. We're going to speak with Dr. Roger Klein, who is uh, with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group. He's also the former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic. What may what uh, we'll get his take on what he makes of all of uh, the reaction, the proposals from President Trump, as well as uh, help us distill the data that we have. We'll be back with Dr. Roger Klein right after. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're now pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Dr. Roger Klein, expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project, FDA, and Health Working Group, Dr. Klein. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, hi, Dan. Good to have you. So, so what about uh, Dr. Fauci's testimony before that uh, House Oversight Committee yesterday, and uh, this, uh, you know, running debate about the lethality rate? So, I agree with much of what you're saying, but I would take issue to some extent. Dr. Fauci may be correct, but on the other hand, we do have data now. There's very good data coming out of Germany, which is doing widespread testing, and they're running a death rate of about 0.15%, which is identical to the flu. I think we need to look at this with a, with a broader perspective as a person who's run diagnostic labs for nearly 20 years. What we're seeing is ascertainment bias. We're seeing people who are tested who come to attention, medical attention, they're sicker. Where if you test a bunch of dead people, it's going to look like the disease kills everybody. And if you test a bunch of sick people, it's going to look like the disease causes a lot of sickness. If you test widely, you're going to get a much more representative picture of what that disease actually is. In Germany, where they developed the WHO test, 
and they're quite efficient. They have 1,966 cases, so it's not like they have just a handful. They've only had three deaths. You have to believe that, first of all, they're getting a more representative sample of disease in the population. And second, maybe they're isolating people and uh, quarantining them better because of this testing. And what, what about uh, just going back to, to uh, the, the data game again? What about those uh, projections about how many will be infected? The, the blaring headline on Drudge yesterday was Merkel suggesting 70 percent of Germans will be infected. The, the, there's a uh, uh, epidemiologists who are predicting 70 to 110 million Americans will be affected by the time the virus goes around and before there can be, I guess, effective um, mitigation efforts comprehensively. What, what, what about that that aspect of it? Well, now, so, so some of it depends on, on how how dangerous it is, how lethal it is, or how even the, the, the extent of disease. If it causes severe de- disease, and, and most people who get it, well, of course, you're not going to have that kind of spread because people will be immediately isolated. If it doesn't make people sick, then more people will get it. Forty million people, five to 20 percent of the United States population gets infected with flu every year. If these numbers out of Germany are right and it's 0.15 percent identical to the flu in terms of the death rate, well, sure, a lot of people are probably going to get it. And if it hangs around with us, eventually they will. Uh, you know, if it, if it leaves that, you know, then that, then it won't happen. Uh, but but I think I think the greater question is, is, is really what are we dealing with? We, we need to do more testing here to understand. But I'm very heartened by the German numbers. And, and with respect to the response uh, with the the states declaring uh, states of emergency, limiting gatherings to 250 people, uh, suspending basketball seasons, doing events without fans, all of those responses, classes online as opposed to in classrooms. Is that all, have those evasive measures struck you as judicious, generally speaking? Look, you know, if, if, if in fact it turns out to be worse than many of us have suspected, you know, they would, they would turn out to be prudent. If it, you know, it, it, it could, I mean, I think in general we're having an overre, an overreaction. I mean, to me, this has looked all, all along like a flu, you know, maybe a, a worse flu, but a flu-like illness. And we've, you know, we, we've responded in some ways as if it's a, a you know, a life-threatening Ebola. And I, if that, that, that isn't, that isn't the case. I think we're, you know, if it hangs with us, we're going to have vaccines as well. And it may, you know, if it's with us for the long term, it's probably going to end up to be another flu. And if it's, um, if it's not, you know, all the better. I Look, people need to take hygienic measures. They need to wash their hands and they need to use hand sanitizer. They need to not, you know, all these things stay away from coughing people. If people are sick, you know, we've walked around too much. People, people are sick and have gone out and, and spread it to other people. And the, the flu kills, kill, kills 60,000 people a year and we just ignore it. And that, I think that's the, the, the thing that's always been concerning or has been concerning to me from the start is that it, it, the response isn't in proportion. If you're if it's if 60,000 people a year die from the flu and we and we just shrug it off. Why are we why are we panicking about a very small number of people uh, at, at this point? I, I you know, I think I, I think that that we need to keep it in perspective. That That's really the the. The situation we, you know, an elderly person ought to be avoiding crowds because of the flu. Many of the many of the measures that we're taking, the reasonable ones for sure, should have been done a long time ago. I want to go back to something you said too, sort of comparing and contrasting how this uh, virus has spread in different locales. Uh, particularly important comparing uh, what you said uh, is happening in Germany and that data to what's happening in Italy. 
uh, with the president's call yesterday, announcement yesterday, that uh, there'd be a 30-day travel ban to EU, including with respect to uh, goods. Uh, Does that strike you as an overreaction? Should we be more surgical in thinking about uh, uh, human interactions, both uh, of a social nature as well as an economic nature? You know, Singapore and South Korea have done one level of containment, and Iran is doing another level of containment, obviously less well. Uh, Italy versus Germany, another comparison. Yeah, so Italy's a great, a great case in point, and it's a contrast to the experience in Germany, and people are really trying to look at these and compare them and, and try to understand what's going on. I think, you know, I think it's, it's reasonable to, until we understand what, until we have more definitive information about what we're dealing with, I think it's quite reasonable to, uh, to restrict travel. What I would, you know, the argument that, that if you look at the German data, you, you have to, there has to be some reason or explanation for why the, the huge disparity in, in uh, death rate between uh, between Germany and Italy. Uh, and, you know, you're, I, I mean, there are, you, it could be that, that Germans are, they haven't experienced yet because they're testing immediately. Uh, that seems unlikely to, to dramatically increase the rate. What could be going on in Italy is that it's really widespread. And there are lots and lots of people who have it, and they just haven't tested them. And that would be, it seems like uh, a, a very what a very good explanation for at least part of it. There are other things, elderly, you know, maybe they have an older population and that and, and, uh, and a more susceptible, you know, more smokers or something. I mean, there are possible reasons for it. You know, I read something and they talked about the Italian culture and they don't put a lot of space between each other. And, it, and it's conceivable that there's just a lot of people who are infected there. And if you would test everybody who was infected, you would have a, a you would have a much lower rate. Dr. Roger Klein, expert with Regulatory Transparency Projects, FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. In other words, he knows what he's talking about. Dr. Klein, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, and uh, you know what? On second thought. After seeing this next clip I'm about to play, maybe some of those people who are predicting end times, maybe they're onto something. This is from this uh, new show called Masked Singer, hosted by Mr. Mariah Carey, a.k.a. Nick Cannon. Closing out the show with a special guest doing her karaoke of Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back. See if you can guess who this is. You get sprung. Oh, it's like a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of 
I've seen everything and more, more than I ever wanted to see because I never wanted to see Sarah Palin karaoke baby got back. Oh, my goodness. What is even the point of surviving coronavirus? Sarah Palin karaoke Sir Mix-a-Lot on one side and uh, Fredo's brother, who apparently is the governor of a state. No, seriously. Just like Sarah Palin was apparently the governor of state. Andrew Cuomo responding to a reporter's question about uh, canceling Irish parade there. I knew that one was going to strike home. (laughs) What kind of authority do you have on March 17th to close New York City, St. Patrick? Well, I'm authorized, you know, by St. Patrick. That's who. Oh, yes. I have the highest authorization, sure. Yeah, yes, it's in the job description. You got to take a look. (laughs) Ah, it could be, maybe. Or maybe I just ask the Archbishop, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Too late, too late. I'm going to be speaking to uh, the parade Uh, organizers. Stay in character. Stick with the bro. And see what they say. Okay, so St. Patty's Day Parade in New York is pending. But Andrew Cuomo as Al D'Amato impersonating Jajito. Except this time impersonating uh, what the Lucky Charms guy. Oh. Cuomo, though, uh, was known for driving the snakes out of Elliot Spitzer's pants, so he's got that. Here's my scandal. I want to get you home and uh, double up. Uh, uh. I ain't talking about Playboy, but silicone parts are made for toys. I want them real thick and juicy. So find that juicy double. Mix a lot's in trouble. Begging for a piece of that bubble. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. Website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Turning to coronavirus and China specifically, since there's been so much in the way of histrionics in response to naming coronavirus. In other words, naming it the Wuhan virus. That is a xenophobic and no less an authority than Jim Acosta said so after the president's speech last night. The president referred to the coronavirus as a, quote, foreign virus. That, I think, was interesting because, as I was talking to sources earlier this evening, one of the points that the president wanted to make tonight, wanted to get across to Americans, is that this virus did not start here. 
uh, but that they're dealing with it. Now, why the president would uh, go as far as to describe it as a foreign virus, that is something we'll also be asking questions about. But it, it should be pointed out that Stephen Miller, uh, who is an immigration hardliner, who advises the president, is uh, one of his top domestic policy advisors and speechwriters, right. uh, was a driving force in writing this speech. And I think it's going to smack, uh, it's going to come across to a lot of Americans as smacking of uh, xenophobia, uh, right. to use that kind of term yeah. in this speech. Oh, yeah. Well, look, sometimes yeah. we can answer the questions. Yeah. High-level discussion between Fredo and Acosta there. Also this, just on topic, President Xi Jinping, uh, he's the president of China. On February 3rd, in a speech before the Politburo, uh, President Xi, quote, after the outbreak of the new coronavirus pneumonia in Wuhan on January 7th, when I presided over a meeting of the Standing Committee of the Political Bureau of the CPC Central Committee, I made a request for the prevention and the control of the new coronavirus phenomena. He cited outbreak of the new coronavirus pneumonia in Wuhan. Somebody needs to tell President Xi that he's a racist. For a more on this topic, to separate the idiocy of some of our politicians and the propaganda of the Chinese communists from fact, we're pleased to be joined by Gordon Chang. He's a columnist at the Daily Beast. He's also the author of Losing South Korea and the Coming Collapse of China. And uh, you can follow him at Gordon C. Chang on Twitter, which I also just tweeted out. Uh, Mr. Chang, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dan. So um, what about uh, President Xi's visit to Wuhan and the declaration that we're there on the other side of the uh, outbreak and that uh, things are starting to get back to normal in China? Well, it's possible, but we really don't know. And the reason is that Xi Jinping, General Secretary of the Communist Party, President of the Chinese State, has really ex imposed extraordinary information controls. So his controls um, support his idea that China should get back to their job sites, and so therefore it is issuing statistics on new infections and deaths which support that narrative. Those statistics could be true, but we know in the past they haven't been, and whenever Chinese statistics support um, Communist Party policy, you have to be suspicious. Well, and uh, I know we've got uh, Democrat politicians here very worried about the word choices of President Trump, not so worried about the communist propaganda emanating from China, where China has tried to flip the script and say that uh, coronavirus was uh, something that uh, uh, finds its genesis in, the, in America. That's really critical point that people are not making. I'm glad that you did for more than a month. Communist Party propaganda and foreign ministry propaganda has been that this virus is spread by the United States. We've caused panic. We are immoral, racist, and that the origin is the U.S. And they've allowed that narrative, especially on social media, to predominate. What Secretary of State Pompeo, Vice President Pence, and now the president have done is to make a point that this is not from the United States. So this is, um, you know, People in the U.S. should understand that we're under attack from China. China's laying the groundwork for a lashing out. This could be not only just irresponsible, but it could also be dangerous. And so I hope that Jim Acosta would understand that. Wow. <laughs> oh, boy, it's a short conversation that things Jim Acosta is interested in understanding, uh, including uh, this story. Uh, we know about the persecution of Uyghur Muslim minorities in China at the hands of the Chinese communists. Uh, and we've heard stories before uh, about uh, uh, organ harvesting of these Muslim prisoners. Uh, and there's a story out again suggesting that that may be going on, uh, harvesting organs from these prisoners to save Chinese nationals. 
Human Right Monitors, this is a report out of, uh, from a British tabloid, Human, right Mo- Human Rights Monitors asking how two matching lungs needed for a 59-year-old's life-saving surgery were found in a few days, whereas in, a, in America, for example, you need a lung transplant, you could be waiting for months or years. years. And, um, and so what about that, uh, uh, about those sort of, uh, you know, just ghastly human rights abuses in China? Well, it's been established by a tribunal in London um, that China has been, in general, organ harvesting. Um, and, you know, in particular cases that have cropped up in the coronavirus episode, um, we don't have confirmation of that. But nonetheless, it is highly probable that those charges are correct, because Beijing has, over the course of decades, um, been forcibly taking organs from various people, including prisoners, Falun Gong practitioners, and others. This is ghastly, um, and, and now the world is starting to pay attention because of the incidents that you mentioned. Um, and clearly, the United States and the rest of the international community has to demand that China stop it and impose costs on China for not stopping it. And when it, when we think about China and how precarious the Xi regime is, um, what's your handle on that? The combination of the Hong Kong democracy protesters, which are still organizing, this, the, the virus has muted that, but they're still uh, present and active, as I understand it from what I've read, but you can inform that, that statement, as well as uh, how the populace is receiving the government's response to this virus. I tend to think that Xi Jinping's position must be uh, fragile and, or at least weakening. Um, it's very hard to tell, but you know he's been responsible for various policy mistakes, including Hong Kong, where, by the way, um, this coronavirus episode has weakened support for China for various reasons. Although, of course, as you point out, the um, protests have diminished in size because people are afraid to come out. Um, it's very difficult to tell, um, but clearly Xi Jinping has been responsible for mistakes. People have criticized him for it. And during the coronavirus outbreak, many Chinese are white-hot angry, and they're demanding fundamental political change. You add all that together, including a weakening economy, which at the moment is contracting, and you say the guy's got to be in trouble. But you've got to remember that this is a totalitarian political system we're talking about, and there's a lot that we do not know, even people who follow it all the time. There's just a lot that we do not know. And, and even if she uh, became too much of a liability for the Communist Party, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to see some sort of uh, overthrow and move to a more democratic society. Isn't it more likely you just see one communist switched in for another? Yes, that's probable. Um, th- that's, it's really fascinating to think about what's going on in Beijing right now. Um, but at this point where um, I think senior Communist Party leaders know that they're in trouble in general, they're not going to um, get rid of Xi Jinping, at least overtly. And the reason is that that would endanger the system and endanger themselves. So it's sort of like they believe that they're all going to hang together. So they are sticking together, at least at the present moment. He is Gordon Chang. He's a columnist at The Daily Beast. He's the author of Losing South Korea, as well as The Coming Collapse of China. And again, follow him at Twitter at at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon Chang, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Hey, hey, hey. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Have a good time. Good time. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. After our conversation with Gordon Chang, let's uh, unshore ourselves and talk a little electoral politics. The other side of the aisle, Bernie and Biden, Bolshevik uh, press conference yesterday announcing that uh, he's sticking in. He wants that uh, one-on-one, that mano-a-mano, that uh, Duran versus Sugar Ray, although the 80-year-old version, uh, chance at Joe Biden on Sunday. One more debate, at least for Bernie, and then... You can go into primaries next week, including in Illinois, and probably get his uh, his hat handed to him. But it's a different thing. Nowhere to hide when you're one-on-one in a debate stage as opposed to one of seven. Donald Trump must be defeated, and I will do everything in my power to make that happen. On Sunday night, in the first one-on-one debate of this campaign, the American people will have the opportunity to see which candidate is best positioned to accomplish that goal. Mm, Yeah. So can Joe Biden hold up under attack from Bernie Sanders? And what form will that attack take if it comes at all? Seems to me the problem is that uh, Bernie just won't go to the place that you need to go to create the sort of doubts that he needs to create to get people to reconsider Joe Biden. He wants to talk about uh, building a multi-generational, multi-racial coalition, blah, 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 and how, you know, he's not that extreme and uh, Joe Biden isn't going far enough and so on and so forth in the policy area and the government takeovers and so f- No, you need to go after Joe Biden in terms of uh, the questions of his capacity, legitimate questions, and you need to go after Joe Biden in terms of his self-enrichment, well, at least his family's, while he was vice president. And the ruling class mentality, the insider game, right? Leveraging your position in government to enrich your family members. Now, of course, uh, Bernie Sanders has done a bit of that, too, as is so documented in the same uh, Peter Schweitzer book with his wife, Jane, getting sinecures and following him around, too, to his various public posts over the last 30 years. But uh, will Joe Biden want to go there? Will he even have the... uh, the sharpness to raise those issues. But Bernie just uh, trying to, you know, put a happy face on his brand of Bolshevism. That's not going to be enough. So maybe Joe Biden falters under his own weight, but that would have to be something pretty cataclysmic, it seems to me, unless Bernie is really able to change his tactics a bit. It just seems unlikely. Uh, But maybe, you know, maybe Joe Biden could have an incident with Bernie like he had with uh, this Detroit construction worker on Tuesday before the votes were tallied in Michigan and a handful of other states. A construction worker now has been identified, not a not a uh, auto worker. I think I misidentified him on the show as an auto worker. Detroit construction worker. He's also been identified by name, not just profession. His name is Jerry Wayne. And he went on Fox and Friends to discuss that uh, confrontation with Joe Biden, which was just a real pleasure on multiple levels, including, and most importantly, the level where Jerry just stood and delivered and went back and forth with the former vice president, unintimidated. But was, he was respectful, but certainly uh, was not going to treat him as his better, more as his prospective representative. And that's the proper approach to politicians. Well, I heard when I first came to work that he'd be coming in. So I spent uh, a little bit of time gathering my thoughts on a question that I might be able to ask. I had no idea that he was going to be taking questions or if it was going to be that type of scenario. 
he started making his rounds, uh, shaking people's hands, and he made it to my way, and I stopped him. I started to ask him a question. He could have easily said, I'm not taking questions, and I would have very respectfully walked away, but he wanted to listen to my question, and I don't think that he was ready for it. Well, it was hard to hear. What did you ask him? Uh, well, I asked him how he was going to be helping get us work, us, us union workers, mm -hmm. work in the future. Uh, we seem to be doing fine at the moment, um, but there's always room for improvement. And I wanted to give him the opportunity to show us where that improvement could come from. And he. And I also asked him, I'm sorry? You go ahead. Uh, I also asked him uh, how he wanted to get the vote of the working man when a lot of us wield arms. We, we, we bear arms and we like to do that. And if he wants to give us work and take our guns, I don't see how he's going to get the same vote. Yeah. Uh, so, Jerry Wayne, uh, maybe 2020 Joe the plumber. I don't know. Get that guy, a, a you know, Jerry the construction worker. Get that guy in a commercial. Uh, pretty articulate and uh, pretty sharp. And so which Joe Biden do you believe? Do you believe the Joe Biden that said you're full of hooey and I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment because my sons and I have shotguns and we hunt? Of course, that has nothing to do with the Second Amendment, but that was his argument. Do you believe that, Joe Biden? Or do you believe the Joe Biden who stood on stage in advance of Super Tuesday with Bobby O'Rourke saying, Bobby O, the gun confiscator, is going to be my gun czar? Who do you believe, Jerry? Uh, the one that wants to take my guns. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. I'd say that's right. Uh, particularly when he was talking about, do you need 100 rounds in that exchange? You remember? You need 100 rounds, AR-15. You need an AR-15. That, that's what he would he would make illegal, but not guns generally, because he's a Second Amendment guy. Uh, AR-15 or AR-14, as Joe Biden uh, calls AR-15s interchangeably. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the safe place, not to mention, and this is an important uh, global statement, who's going to be running Joe Biden were he to make, make it to the Oval Office? You know, where the center of gravity is in the Democrat Socialist Party, and you— uh, can pick up where I think it is by my reference to it as the Democrat Socialist Party. Uh, Jerry Wayne, Jerry, the construction worker, uh, also was asked about uh, Biden swearing at him. Yeah, he's an adult. Uh, he can take it. It's not the first time he's heard blue language. You know, I, I'm kind of used to it in, in, the, in the workforce. And uh, as a politician, I can understand the way how things have gone. You're not supposed to use profanity. But in this day and age, it's a language. I'm not going to hate him for that. And I use it all the time. Most people use it all the time. And I, I don't think that's something to, to, to beat the guy up about. But he, he could have cur he could have curved yeah. what he said a little bit. What sure. about yeah, there's no reason to dislike him. There's so many better reasons to dislike him. I'm going to focus on the fact that he's a plagiarist and a fabulist. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, generally uh, somebody of uh, ill repute and low character, to borrow phrases. Somebody who lies pathologically. He's an intellectual lightweight. I'm going to focus on those reasons to dislike him. That seems to make sense. Uh, also, a good insight from uh, Jerry Wayne, too, about uh, old Scranton Joe and uh, his support for the Second Amendment. Why focus on long guns like a sport rifle, like an AR-15? Were you surprised, Jerry, that uh, you asked a civil question and he, uh, Joe Biden just went off the deep end? Anya. 
Yeah, uh, I thought I was pretty articulate and respectful. I, I didn't try, uh, try to raise any, any feathers, and uh, he kind of just went off the deep end. Uh, I saw that he was digging a hole, and I just kind of let him talk for a while to dig the hole. Once, once he started to, uh, once he got caught in a lie, I kind of wanted to ask him why he wanted to take our, our long arms rather than the, the handguns. To, to me, that's very uh, skeptical. If you care about the human life, wouldn't you want to go after the tool that's used the most? Why would you go out, go after long guns? It seems to me that there's an underlying story there. Yeah, that's a good insight and also a uh, good uh, debate strategy. Maybe uh, Jerry, the construction worker, would do debate prep for uh, Bolshevik burning in advance of Sunday. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. Last hour, we talked specifically about the uh, woke histrionics from the D.C. press corps types like uh, Jim Acosta and Fredo over the use of the word foreign. Uh, we also want to per- make sure we present the histrionics of a general nature, just, just general melodramatization. And for that, uh, there's uh, no better example than Don Lamone uh, trying to not let a never-Trumper like Governor John Kasich former Ohio Governor John Kasich, get in a word in edgewise. Times, and I just got to say, if the president came I, out to I, I, calm okay. people's fears, he didn't do a good job of it because they've had to come back and clarify it several times. And th- if this has been going on long he, enough I, for them to get it okay. straight. We need straight, accurate you know information what, from this president yeah. and this administration, and we're not yeah. getting it. And I don't understand why you are tiptoeing around it. He came out, gave an address that, oh, that usually you know had, that happens very rarely, and he doesn't get it right? I'm going to tell you, first of all, he read it. And somebody that wrote this, look, I don't want to get into that. He well, it was Why on not? Today That's why you're here to talk about the president's can I, address. Can I finish now? No, but Let no, me no, no, talk. no, 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 you Let can't, John. John, because we're here to talk oh, about I can't the president's talk. Wait, we're here. I don't want you to, I don't want you to go on and deflect and talk about something else because we're here to talk about the president's address. And, and you said that someone else wrote it. He's the president. Even if someone look, else he, wrote it, it should be I know right. he did. And he has to be, resp- Don, Don. He put he put this thing out because there was some confusion out there. Okay, this now is there's a more very confusion, John. And what I'm look look I'm gonna, I'm trying to say to you, Don, we got to move down the road. Looking back doesn't get things fixed. We're not I'm looking not back. The president's address. The president's address was tonight. Yeah, so there's the core sort of uh, dialogue you get on CNN to really advance your understanding of the issue. The sort of value add. Uh, that can uh, provide uh, the uh, context to keep calm and carry on, right? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Joy Pullman, who's the executive editor of The Federalist, federalist.com. Joy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, Don Lamone has certainly internalized the uh, propaganda coming from the big government press corps there inside the Beltway that this is a combination of Trump's Chernobyl and Katrina. (laughs) Right. And if you would, if you, you could not ask for a worse media treatment of whatever is happening right now with this potential threat, you know, to American health than the one that we've been given. You know, it's just, it's been all about politics. <laughs> it's been all about rushing to judgment, scaring the bejeebers out of people, um, and, and inducing panic and anger. And none of those are the sorts of <laughs> emotions and the behavior that people should be having 
um, you know, when we're basically on a wait and watch kind of list to hear more information about how this is affecting the United States. We don't know very much right now, and in the absence of good information, you know, they're basically the left in the media are using this as an opportunity to stampede people into an, you know, economic uncertainty. Um, you know, uh, it, it, that's going to uh, possibly, I mean, depending on how things work out, it could have very likely many larger effects on Americans, just the crazy economic and the social stampede than the actual virus itself. And this is not to say that the administration is beyond reproach and above substantive criticism with respect to the handling of the matter, uh, both to present and go on a go forward basis. I mean, they, there's an accountability that has to attach here. But um, but it should just be it should be you know based on the substance of the behavior and the decision making, not based on you know, uh, semantics about word choices and so on and so forth. And it seems to me that the left is alternatively arguing that the government response has been too small as well as too big. And they don't know either of those things, right? Because we honestly don't even know what the situation is going to be like or even is like in the United States, um, you know, due to the the lack of testing and, and the lack of a lot of information about where is what in the United States and how it's affecting us as opposed to other countries that, you know, are basically you know, command and control run socialized economies, very, you know, different circumstances than we have here in the U.S., as well as a lot of different kind of on the ground health conditions. So in the again, you know, I absolutely think it's it's fair game to judge, um, you know, government officials on their performance in crisis. But we honestly don't even know how their performance is doing. And we're not going to know it for a couple of months. And Uh so, you know, given Given that, the best thing to do is to let them, we elected them to do jobs like this. We need to let them do their jobs. And then after it shakes out, we can pass judgment on them at the ballot box. But getting in here and, and criticizing and politicizing, you know, something that's a, re- a real threat to people is, is only making things worse. Um, and, 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 and some of the media <laughs> responses, it seems like they even want things to be worse because they hate the president. And that is completely, I mean, that's, I mean, just flat out on American. They should stuck together and support whatever is best for the American people, close ranks and get out there you know, and help people in, in need rather than turning this into a political opportunity to try to take down a political figure they dislike. Uh, when we come back uh, with Joy Pullman, executive editor of the Federalist, Federalist.com, I want to ask about some of the legitimate questions, though, that we can ask based on you know comparing and contrasting other countries' response to the spread of the virus. More with Joy Pullman right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking about the uh, politics of the president's response to the coronavirus with Joy Pullman, executive editor of The Federalist, thefederalist.com. He's written a piece, uh, Trump's Chernobyl, in quotation marks, media, Wuhan virus hysteria stokes public panic. And uh, that's certainly a part of it. And uh, a lot of people from across the spectrum actually are chiming in on that, which is nice to see. Uh, We mentioned on the show yesterday, uh, Dr. Drew uh, uh, dispensing with giving relationship advice for a moment and focusing on the sort of unconscionable whipping of hysteria by people like the Don Lamones of the world. But um, with respect to uh, legitimate questions to be directed at the president and his administration in terms of the response, 
One of them, it seems to me, is about the number of Americans who've been tested and how quickly uh, it's starting mm-hmm. to it's starting to ramp up. But, you know, we're just north of at least it's been reported just north of maybe 12000 Americans tested uh, where South Korea is doing 10,000 people a day. It seems like a, a little bit slow on uh, relieving the regulatory bottlenecks at CDC for local health care providers, as well as distributing uh, calling together and distributing as many of these testing kits as possible so that more Americans could be tested more quickly. Right. And obviously we can't make a very good judgment about how big the virus is or what to do about it if we don't even know how many people have it. So that is, I would say that's the chief concern right at this moment. Um, and it's, it, and, and, I think a big problem with this that the experts on this have identified is, in fact, something that the president's policies, I mean, the president has been talking about since before his election, is our economy's interdependence on China. I mean, we have, in, in a lot of cases, you know, upwards of 90 percent of Amer- you know, American health goods, depending on which kind it is, you know, things like aspirin, you know, things, you know, just, uh, you know, sanitizers, masks, all of that sort of thing. Lot majority of that it comes from China. So the president's trade policies in his last three four years of questioning our dependence on a communist country, as well as you know our lack of ability to take care of ourselves in times of global and national need. You know, obviously that is. I mean, it, it, it's something that we can't fix right at this moment, but it should have been fixed before we got to this moment. And so it really heightens that problem that the president has been talking about again for four years. And he's been fighting every, you know, everyone from within his own party all the way, of course, to the left on that. Well, right. And, and uh, just to, you know, give the president some quarter here too, that he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Um, when he uh, instituted the first travel ban in January, the, uh, mm-hmm. the cries of xenophobia were out then too. That now in retrospect, that looks like a very judicious decision that he made. Absolutely. I mean, and we also have, you know, a situation where the United States bureaucracy is sclerotic, right? It's it's a lot of infighting, a lot of things spent on, you know, personal agendas and infighting. And Congress, again, hasn't addressed that for decades, even though it's been a very obvious problem throughout the Trump presidency. And again, that's the sort of thing that affects our ability to meet national needs like this under a crisis. It really handicaps us. It's interesting too the, the the politics, the electoral politics of this. You know, people trying to project out to November a coronavirus uh, changes uh, Trump's uh, perhaps his position as uh, the favorite in the race in November. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. You point out some things. Well, he's taken positions that if America had adopted those positions earlier, we would be in a stronger position to combat the virus. Like we're talking about the you know the prescription drugs that are. Uh, uh, produced in China or dependent on uh, supply chains that uh, that re- relate back to China. Uh, also, the matter of just being um, mentally acute and with the deci- with the uh, the questions about, you know, is Joe Biden prepared for the rigors of this job uh, is, you know, does he have the synapses firing fast enough to be the chief executive of the United States of America? And uh, even if you are going to you know nitpick at Trump's response, the Trump administration's response, real questions about capacity with Joe Biden. And that's a very different question. Yes. And I mean, I don't really like to speculate about people's uh, (laughs) mental health, especially when they're old. But I think, uh, you know, the real question here is that, I mean, Joe Biden isn't just asking to be treated like a grandpa with charity from normal people. He's asking to be placed in a position of intense public trust and demand. 
And therefore, he makes his health a legitimate public question, something to think about when you're considering electing him. I mean, so something that I keep thinking about in this context is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. At the end of his presidency, you know, his administration was literally negotiating the end of the largest world war that ever been seen to that point. And later accounts revealed that his age showed that you know, he was basically in, incompetent. He was mumbling. You know, he was not able to do his presidential job. And because of that, you know, we literally created the Cold War. His aides, a lot number of them were actual Soviet agents, and they crafted U.S. policy towards communism that, again, created the Cold War after Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So you really can't mess around <laughs> with things like the sharpness of the president and his ability to handle crisis because they do happen, and it's very important that things not get shuffled off onto AIDS when they do. Right, and, and look, it, it was the left and members of the press that are left that were uh, questioning Bernie Sanders about the release of, of all of his health records after his heart event late last year. Now, he seems clearly recovered from that, and he seems to have the energy he's He's had, at least in terms of recent memory, um, shouting at people for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> he's back. Yeah, exactly. He's the old birdies back. Um, but but I mean, it was a legitimate question to ask about his heart health. Why isn't it a legitimate question with the number of gaffes, bizarre gaffes, not knowing what office you're running for, calling yourself O'Biden, um, not intentionally, uh, you know, just I mean, on and on and on with Joe Biden, 150 million people killed by uh, gun violence over the last decade. Why isn't a legitimate question to put that to Joe Biden? Of course it is. Right. It is a legitimate question. Um, and I mean, remember, President Trump, when, during his campaign, he was questioned on his mental stability. Yeah. And he took action or tests and released the results. So I don't see any reason that Joe Biden wouldn't be asked to do the same, you know, turn about his fair play. She is Joy Pullman. She's the executive editor of The Federalist. To check out her piece at thefederalist.com. Trump's Chernobyl, quote unquote, Media Wuhan virus hysteria stokes public panic. Joy, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Mara Gay is a member of the New York Times editorial board. You may find that name sounds familiar because uh, she was on with uh, Brian 007 Williams on MSNBC last week. And the two of them and every producer over at MSNBC can't do sixth grade math. And so uh, their exchange, which you'll I'll I'll remind you of momentarily, went viral. And now in response to all the criticism she's received, what's she doing? She's a black woman. She's playing the race card in an op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, I'm sure cherry-picking comments that were sent her direction, whether email or online, that were intemperate and stupid and, and racist 
okay, at least if you take her at her word, which I'll do for the sake of this argument. But uh, the larger play, of course, is to ignore the unbelievable arrogance and incompetence that punctuates people like Mara Gay and the rest of the New York Times editorial board, for that matter. This was the exchange in question. Um, Somebody tweeted recently that um, actually with the money he spent, he could have given every American a million dollars. I've got it. Let's put it up on the screen. When I read it uh, tonight on social media, it kind of all became clear. Bloomberg spent 500 million on ads. U.S. population, 327 million. Uh, Don't tell us if you're ahead of us on the math. He could have given each American one million dollars and have had lunch money left over it's an incredible way of putting it it really it's is an incredible way it really is. of putting it yeah. it's true it's disturbing it does it does suggest you know what we're talking about here which is there, there's too much money in politics uh, not only do you have the math right you have the conclusion from the erroneous math right but i guess you start from a bad premise you get a bad conclusion so uh obviously uh 330 million and five hundred million doesn't and five hundred million dollars doesn't allow you to provide those three hundred twenty seven million with a million dollars each million dollars plus each, which is what they were saying. It allows you to provide them with like a dollar fifty one cents each. If you wanted to uh, p- uh, provide three hundred twenty seven million people with a million dollars each, you'd have to round up about three hundred or thirty two. I should say thirty two point seven trillion dollars, which uh, not even Mike Bloomberg has. And then the larger issue of too much money in politics, too much money in politics, $500 million Mike Bloomberg spent to get what, 40 delegates? Did he buy the presidency? Did he buy the Democrat nomination? No. Maybe he could buy his way into public office in New York City. But he becomes yet another self-financing candidate uh, whose tombstone litters the political graveyard. In point of fact, uh, Mara Gay is wrong on the underlying dynamic of politics and government. Most self-funders do not win. And uh, she's also wrong on the idea, of course, the implication. Her and Brian Williams, by the way, I'm talking about them interchangeably. She just talks about herself in her op-ed decrying people who uh, made uh, the experience weird and maddening and painful for her. She should be ashamed of herself. And so should Brian Williams, and so should the producers of MSNBC who can't fact-check a simple math equation. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, Last June, before a Senate subcommittee, our uh, friend and colleague, Dennis Prager testified about the influence of big tech on our politics uh, and our culture. So did Dr. Robert Epstein, who's a senior research psychologist at the American Institute for Behavioral Research, Harvard trained. This was one of the uh, more jarring exchanges and, frankly, underreported exchanges of all the testimony that was offered about the power of big tech to influence our politics. The number one financial supporter of the Hillary Clinton campaign in the 2016 election was the parent company of Google, Alphabet, who was our first witness. They were her number one financial donor, and your testimony is, through their deceptive search methods, 
they moved 2.6 million votes in her direction. I would think anybody, whether or not you favor one candidate or another, should be deeply dismayed about a handful of Silicon Valley billionaires having that much power over our elections to silently and deceptively shift vote outcomes. Again, with respect, I must correct you. The 2.6 million is a rock bottom minimum. Mm. The range is between 2.6 and 10.4 million, depending on how aggressively they used the techniques that I've been studying now for six and a half years. 2.6 to 10 million in 2016. Professor Epstein went on to say, the Dr. Epstein went on to say, that uh, if uh, big tech companies got together in 2020, they could move 15 million votes based on the six years of research, six and a half years of research he's done tracking Google and uh, how these big tech companies work. And what's the conversation been in the last week? All about how Facebook is part of the right wing echo chamber, thus Hillary Clinton's criticism over the weekend. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Dr. Robert Epstein, senior research psychologist at the American Institute for Behavioral Research and Technology, former editor-in-chief of Psychology Today. Dr. Epstein, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. It's a big statement you made back in uh, the summer of last year based on your research, and you made an even bigger one uh, the end of last month, basically saying that Republicans can't win. Uh, President Trump cannot win in 2020 because of the influence that big tech is likely to likely to impose. That's correct, because there are just so many votes that they can shift and they can do it in a way that is basically subliminal so people can't see what they're doing. And they can do it in a way that uses ephemeral content. That's what they call it internally at Google, ephemeral experiences or ephemeral content, which means content that's just kind of generated on the fly just for you, like search results or news feeds, uh, not stored anywhere. So no authorities can go back in time and figure out what they were showing people. So they have tremendous power to shift both invisibly and in a way that no authority can trace. You uh, write about those ephemeral experiences that you've done control double blind experiments to try to uh, uh, measure their persuasive capacity. And what did you find? The first spec I found, which is way back in 2013 now, uh, theme search engine manipulation effect, that can easily shift at least 20 percent of undecided voters up to 80 percent in some demographic groups. And that's biased search results. People can't see the bias in search results. But when there is bias, meaning high-ranking search results linked to a web page that makes one candidate look better than the other, that has a tremendous impact on undecided voters because they trust Google. They trust what's higher in search results. Theme is one of only about a dozen techniques that I discovered like this. We're currently studying and quantifying one we call YME, which is the YouTube manipulation effect, I think this is going to prove to be even more powerful uh, than uh, the impact of bias search results. And um, uh, you, I I should hasten to add, you were a Hillary Clinton voter in 2016. You're you're not a conservative. You're not a Republican. Uh, Why aren't you happy about this, uh, tilting the uh, playing field to the advantage of of candidates of your choosing? Because uh, I believe that there are bigger issues here than any party or or candidate. There are much bigger issues here. I believe in America. I believe in democracy. I believe in the free and fair election. I don't want uh, democracy undermined by a handful of private companies in Silicon Valley. And these companies are impacting opinions, votes, attitudes, beliefs, purchases, 
not just in the United States, uh, but around the world. Almost every country in the world uh, depends on these same companies, mainly Google and Facebook. And these techniques are being used to subvert democracy and even human autonomy around the world. That's why I'm speaking out. All the talk still of uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election, some misreporting recently about uh, efforts to interfere in the 2020 election and whose scale they were trying to put their finger on, uh, both in the primary as well as the general election. You find that all to be uh, misdirectional in nature. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, look, I don't think we should allow Russia to to shift, you know, even one vote in our elections. Uh, But the fact is they have very, very little power to shift more than a few thousand votes here and there. Whereas the tech companies themselves can shift millions of votes. You see, tech, a, a, a company like a, like Russia or maybe China or a company like Cambridge Analytica, all they can do is try to throw some content at us, you know, uh, post some content on the Internet, fake websites, uh, ads, whatever it is. But content doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is who determines what content we see or don't see, and who determines the order in which content is presented. And that filtering and ordering is done by Google, and to a lesser extent Facebook, and to a much lesser extent Twitter. That's who, where the power is uh, to, to shift votes and, and rig elections. Uh, are all three of those uh, behemoths uh, in the same business? Because they're certainly presenting differently to the public. Google is uh, almost unabashed, as you're describing, in saying we need to prevent what happened in 2016, meaning from happening in 2020, meaning Trump's election. Facebook, Zuckerberg, saying you know, we don't want to be in the censorship business. is trying to sort of play it straight, at least public perception-wise. And Twitter says you know, they're out of, they don't want any political advertising, they don't want to be in that arena at all. You just have to look at the donation patterns uh, for all three companies. In fact, almost every single tech company in Silicon Valley, somewhere between 95 and 97 percent of donations uh, go to Democrats. In some cases, we also have whistleblowers. We have them from both Google and Facebook, and they're confirming what the donation patterns tell us, mm-hmm. which is these companies are uh, leaning heavily to the left, uh, as, as I tend to lean, by the way, and everyone in my family does too, uh, again, I should be cheering these companies uh, for what they're doing uh, for, uh, you know, basically undermining democracy. But I can't. I won't cheer them. I won't, I won't allow them to do this. None of us should allow them to do what they're doing. No company should have this kind of power. Literally, in this upcoming election, uh, to shift 15 million votes with uh, – people unaware that this is happening, uh, using subliminal techniques, using ephemeral experiences that don't leave a paper trail. I mean, this is, this is a much bigger problem than who the next president is. I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm not trying to get him reelected, but I am trying to restore uh, the free and fair election. There is a way to do it, uh, as I've explained in recent articles. Uh, that's by setting up a very aggressive monitoring system. In other words, by doing to them what they do to us 24-7, by monitoring them very aggressively and catching them uh, showing biased uh, material, for example, or, sh- or catching them using some sort of manipulation and then reporting it day by day. You want them to disclose the algorithms that produce their search results, yes? No, absolutely not. In fact, disclosing their algorithms would tell us nothing. 
because algorithms are completely opaque, even to programmers, I know because I am one. Uh, no, what we have to do is what I've done on a smaller scale in 2016, 2018. That is, we have to look over the shoulders of real users, thousands of them around the country, with their permission, of course, just like the Nielsen Company, uh, you know, monitors uh, the, the television habits. watching yeah, yeah. of uh, families. We have to have uh, these, uh, we call them field agents around the country, uh, whom we've equipped with special software. Uh, that allows us to see what these companies are showing them. We have to aggregate the data in real time, 24-7. Uh, we have to report uh, shenanigans, irregularities to the Federal Election Commission, to the media, to members of Congress. We ha and, we, and these companies, if we do this, will back off uh, and, we'll, and we'll detect it when they're backing off, and then we will have the usual uh, free and fair election as and fair as it ever is, anyway. He is Dr. Robert Epstein. He's a senior research psychologist at the American Institute for Behavioral Research and Technology, former editor-in-chief of Psychology Today, and again, uh, to help support his research, mygoogleresearch.com is the website, mygoogleresearch.com. Dr. Epstein, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Take care. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, we have life imitating a Shakespearean tragedy in American politics. And that was before coronavirus. Now it's just accentuated that much more. What can we learn from the Bard's tragedies? For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by the Larry Miller Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University and the author of The Year of Lear, Shakespeare in 1606. And his new book is Shakespeare in a Divided America, What His Plays Tell Us About Our Past and Our Future. He is Professor James Shapiro. Professor Shapiro, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Yeah, what a, what a, what a timely book. Um, I, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking in my mind, uh, Aeschylus and Measure for Measure, some by Vice Do Rise and others by Virtue Fall. But I think that was considered a mm -hmm. comedy. That's not good enough uh, <laughs> to describe our politics. We got to go. We got to go right to the Mad King or or uh, Julius Caesar, I suppose. Um, you know, pick one of the tragedies and uh, apply it to our divided country. Our uh, are, uh, you know, uh, arguably toxic politics. Well, we're not really good in this country at talking across the cultural divide. And the truth is, we've never been really good at it. The play I would pick is Julius Caesar. And it's a play about people who decide we're going to get rid of the guy in charge. Mm -hmm. And whether it's John Wilkes Booth deciding to assassinate Abraham Lincoln after playing in Julius Caesar and uh, assassinating him in April 1865, leaping on stage after shooting Lincoln, crying out, Six Semper Tyrannus, thus always with tyrants. Or you can leap ahead to Central Park in 2017, where a Trump lookalike is assassinated on stage at the public theater production of Julius Caesar. 
we keep turning to Shakespeare to reenact our fantasies and nightmares. Well, it's interesting, just as uh, Shakespeare is uh, less and less a staple of English departments at the university level, the irony uh, uh, abounds a bit. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's just the nature of the human condition, right? That's what Shakespeare wrote about, ambition, good versus evil, appearance versus reality. So why shouldn't these uh, plays have uh, applicability, you know, 400 years later? Well, when you and I went to school and were force-fed Shakespeare, or loved it for that matter, I hated it in school, we were taught about appearance and reality and those subjects. But beneath that, you know, there's a whole lot more going on. Mm-hmm. These are plays about exclusion. Every comedy ends with a community that's recreated and somebody left out, whether it's Shylock and the Merchant of Venice, the puritanical Malvolio in Twelfth Night. These plays enact the story of our nation, who's in, who's out, who's considered fully part of the community. So it's not just appearance and reality. It turns out to be about race. It turns out to be about immigration. And Shakespeare has been weaponized uh, in our country for a couple of centuries as we try to figure out how we should go forward together. You mentioned, uh, I, I think uh, you mentioned, uh, uh, when you talk about race, uh, Othello and uh, Othello and Desdemona and how that was has been received throughout the annals of American history. You know, you take uh, one of the most liberal progressive people in our nation's history, our sixth president, John Quincy Adams, fierce opponent of slavery, leading abolitionist of his day. And yet he comes down on the side of saying Desdemona, a white woman, for marrying the black Othello who strangles and smothers her to death, got what she deserved. Mm. And if people don't really talk about what their real views on race truly are, and John Quincy Adams never wrote about miscegenation, except when he's writing about Shakespeare. So one of the ways in which we can kind of get at what is really thought and felt in this country is through Shakespeare. And that's what I've tried to do in this book. And uh, with respect to um, you know those issues and going back to uh, Julius Caesar, it seems like uh, there's a lot of people uh, crying havoc and letting loose the dogs of war. It's coming from a lot of different directions. I couldn't agree more. And I think that we have to figure out in this country across the divide that's getting ever wider, what holds us together. And one of the things that holds us together is Shakespeare. And for over two centuries now, he has been part of every American's education. And it's a commonly held legacy, and there are not a lot of them. So I think we have to hold on to Shakespeare. It's okay if it's a tug of war between left and right, but it's not okay when that rope becomes frayed. We have to figure out how to talk across a divide and Shakespeare for as long as America has been around has helped us do that. Uh, yeah. When, when do we get to uh, where yeah, the Shakespearean sonnets uh, tell us about life in America, where it's more about more whimsical and more about uh, things that are uh, uplifting, like, you know, love, you know, it would be nice to, to point to the stuff that's uplifting about love, but one of the darkest chapters in my book is about Harvey Weinstein's efforts to change the ending, of which he was the producer of that great 1998 movie, Shakespeare, Shakespeare in Love. Love. Yeah. 
So as with Shakespeare, every tragedy is tinged with comedy and every comedy tinged with darkness. And, and I mean, just as an aside, going back to it, I mean, how concerned are you about uh, English departments at some of the leading universities in the country, including the Ivy League, dispatching uh, Shakespeare? I mean, I, you know, in Chicago, where I live, we have a, the Shakespeare Theater. It's a great theater. They consistently do great productions and the uh, uh, ad- interpretations or adaptations of them for some modern to put them in modern context are um, almost unequivocally good, at least in my humble opinion. I'm not a scholar like you are. And, and so it seems like that's an important part of culture and heritage in America, in the West in general. It is and it isn't. I'm a kid from Brooklyn who got turned off to Shakespeare in junior high and high school, never took a college course in Shakespeare. Okay. And here I am making Shakespeare part of my life. Abe Lincoln never had any formal education and yet could commit to memory half the plays. So while I think that it's a lovely thing when Shakespeare is taught uh, at the higher levels of our educational systems, it's much more important that we support the 150 Shakespeare festivals in this country. I belong to Hmm. uh, uh, a theater company at the Public Theater. I advise their productions. We take Shakespeare into prisons. We take Shakespeare into places that have no literacy. Shakespeare belongs to everybody, and to me, the plays live in production. So I worry less about what goes on in school and more about an Internet culture in which kids no longer go to see plays. That worries me. Oh, great perspective. I appreciate that. He is James Shapiro, the Larry Miller Professor of English and Comparative Lit at Columbia, author of The Year of Lear, Shakespeare in 1606, and his new book, Shakespeare in a Divided America, What His Plays Tell Us About Our Past and Future Professor Shapiro, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck with the book. Uh, Thank you so much. Take care. on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Last night in his national address, President Trump again describing what has been done by the administration to combat the spread of the coronavirus and now really in the mitigation phase. Uh, as well as uh, what will be done. Here's what has been done, according to the president. Our team is the best anywhere in the world. At the very start of the outbreak, we instituted sweeping travel restrictions on China and put in place the first federally mandated quarantine in over 50 years. We declared a public health emergency and issued the highest level of travel warning on other countries as the virus spread its horrible infection. And taking early, intense action, we have seen dramatically fewer cases of the virus in the United States than are now present in Europe. Well, that's uh, true to some extent, although it's still very early on and um, the testing has not been as comprehensive as one would 
desire at this juncture. Uh, that's uh, among the criticisms that Dominic Green has leveled in the direction of the president with respect to his handling of the coronavirus outbreak to this point. We're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Dominic Green, life and arts editor, Spectator USA, contributor to The Wall Street Journal and The New Criterion. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're pretty tough on POTUS uh, today. Uh, you know, uh, we're talking about um, some of his statements that turned out not to be true. Uh, clearly, uh, efforts by him to maintain uh, calm, but uh, in a way that perhaps was a little bit inartful and misleading, and thus created more panic, suggesting that uh, you know the number of cases had been declining at the end of February when we were just really getting into it. Is a is a fair criticism. But overall, um, you're you're uh, not too pleased with the president's uh, response to this point. I'm afraid that I'm not, Dan. As you know, I'm I'm very often um, very impressed by the way that President Trump does not resemble the usual kind of politician. But I do feel that in this case, the things which are strengths of Donald Trump in other areas have in a way handicapped his response. Um, I feel that optimism, which is a tremendous thing when it comes to markets, when it comes to changing things, optimism is perhaps not the way to go when dealing with a virus. A virus does not have politics. A virus Mm -hmm. does not mind if you're in the red states or the blue states or anything else. This was a situation where the president might have been better off looking at the outside world, looking at what was happening and trying to get ahead of it. And instead, what we've seen is we're still chasing, we're still responding to a situation which, if the U.S. is going to have the same experience as uh, countries in Asia and also in Europe, a situation which is now going to get exponentially more difficult to control or treat. But even in Germany, for example, uh, where you've had almost 2,000 cases but only three deaths, uh, you still have Angela Merkel saying uh, we expect 70 percent of the population to be infected at some point. So, I mean, to some extent, you can, it seems, at least it's the, 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 there are those making this case by the predictions they're offering, that you can do everything right. And, and because this is novel and because uh, it's difficult to, to contain uh, and, and because of some of the misinformation coming out of the source, the, geni- the, the place where this was sourced, uh, you're still going to see a lot of infections. And it's about... Uh, providing proper transparency and and, uh, proper care for those infected. I think that is all very true. I I think that because the U.S. is experiencing several weeks later than societies in Europe, and of course, even two months later than people in Asia, because of that, there was an opportunity uh, to really uh, strike out and get um, ahead of it, which we've not managed to do at all. It was, of course, very sensible to restrict uh, air travel from China, but it doesn't make much sense in the sort of connected, highly mobile world that we have have if we don't simply close the airports entirely. What I'm seeing here in Massachusetts is that the institutions are sort of making it up as they go along. There Mm. haven't been clear directives on what to do at the federal level. And of course, the general dysfunction of the government is a major factor here as well. It is not a surprise that we might be facing a serious epidemic of one kind or another. And of course, I pray that this one will fizzle out here, that it will not turn into the epidemic we've been expecting for years. You know, that's not the surprise. The surprise is that we have not prepared at all in in the way that we should have. 
Um, the, we've, we've seen panic buying. We've seen um, random responses. You know, some clo schools are closed here in Massachusetts. The colleges have gradually, one by one, sent all the students home. There's no real sense uh, of any official uh, understanding of what's going on or a decisiveness. And I think people understand this is a disease. As the president said last night, you know, this is not something we factored or expected in this way. It does um, create chaos and a crisis and so on. And that's precisely the moment at which the federal government needs to have those plans on the shelf and to really jump into action. And we haven't really seen that either. When we come back, I want to pick up on uh, that point that you made and have a little bit of a discussion about federalism. More with Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor, Spectator USA, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Back with Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor of Spectator USA, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, New Criterion. And Dominic, before the break, we're talking about uh, the lack of a coordinated uh, federal response. But, but, but let's talk about that a little bit more, because unlike uh, most uh, every other country in the world, you know, we have power decentralized in this country. That's our federalist system. And so uh, Chicago cancels its uh, St. Patrick's Day parade, but New York hasn't made a decision. Washington State is limiting gatherings uh, to no more than 250 people, but that's not what everybody's doing. Uh, the NBA suspended its season this morning. Major League Soccer suspended, is, is suspending its season for 30 days, but uh, hockey isn't yet. Um, so, I mean, you know, where should the federal government be sort of instituting, in your mind, instituting these categorical diktats? And where should you allow state and local governments to chart their own course based on how the virus is proceeding in their area of jurisdiction? Well, Dan, I, I think this is the horns of the dilemma. And of course, this is the one on which the, the government is wriggling. It's extremely difficult. Yes, uh, state authorities have all kinds of powers uh, to limit, say, gatherings or parades and so on. But unless you can, as you can currently, move easily from one state to the next, um, it doesn't really, therefore, um, stop the uh, spread of the disease. It can only slow it to a degree. Um, you need a unified national response to this sort of thing in the same way uh, as most states would probably not think that launching uh, satellites of their own, for instance, is, is in their interest. When it comes to these things, we need a collective and fast-moving kind of a form, really, of, of preemptive disaster relief. And we've seen problems with government agencies previously. I mean, Hurricane Katrina and FEMA being an example of this. There seems to be um, a, a slowness and, an, and, a, and a disorder. There's a rustiness. And of course, when you look at the American economy, you see ingenuity, speedy responses, dynamism, all the things that the world still looks to the United States for. But when you look at the federal system, you see something which is like a slow-moving, rusty antique. Well, uh, right. But uh, and I, I think there's no I, look. I mean, I think that's generally there's too much faith placed in, in government, particularly central government uh, that is far away from most people as a general rule. I mean, with the government is so bad at all these social engineering gambits that we've uh, embarked upon over the last uh, 
uh, 80 years. But for some reason, when there's a crisis, we say the federal government is the, is the repository of the panacea. I mean, I, it's a little bit of a Jekyll and Hyde well, thing it, for me. But that's a very good point in that the government has been concentrating its energies on the wrong things, telling people what to do, coercing them, putting its nose into business, slowing down the wheels. All of these things are none of the business of government. Absolutely right. And on the other hand, it hasn't done enough to prepare for what I think most people would feel are the essential things. For instance, the most basic forms of security and and rendering people secure in an epidemic, I would argue, is one of those basic forms. I mean, another question which is very difficult to call is this. We know that when it comes to the supply chains of uh, American military production, those are kept inside our borders because that is in the national interest. On the other hand, we've permitted the outsourcing of our medical supply chains all over the world. And this raises now the question of how uh, treating a large outbreak of this uh, virus could be affected by shortness of medical supplies. That also suggests a lack of strategic thinking in an area which we now realize might become an essential national interest. And, and perhaps well, well, something positive which will come out of this is yeah. to think anew about what is and isn't the business of government. Well, and I, I think that's a fair point about the uh, supply chains. And I and, uh, talked a little bit about that earlier in the show with Joy Pullman from The Federalist. And, and right, uh, so we may have more support for, frankly, the position that Donald Trump has taken across uh, sector when it comes to uh, onshoring supply chains in, 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 in all sorts of fields, not just manufacturing. So, I mean, to some extent, you know, he's that's the position he's been taken for uh, decades. And uh, he inherited... Um, a uh, system that uh, hadn't agreed with him and may now agree with him after this experience. Yes, and I think that that's another thing that has slowed down federal responses is this general atmosphere of disagreement, perhaps, between the president who wants to do things differently and the bureaucracy which likes to carry on doing it the same way until the absolute end of time. That's most definitely a factor here. What puzzled me, in a way, is this. We have a president who, at last, understands the value of borders. And yet when it came to something where the borders were a big issue, he didn't seem to be comfortable with really getting into it. He was very good and very engaged when it came to looking at the economic implications. But when it came into the the basic response to a disease, he he didn't seem to want to engage with it as quickly as he should have. Um, Who knows what will happen in the coming months? This might be just a blip and a warning, or it might turn into something which would really um, shape the legacy of the uh, the Trump presidency in a way that he certainly he wouldn't like. And of course, there's no um, uh, there's there's no incentive to be restrained to, to you know, there's always the incentive for a politician to appear to be doing something, even if that something turns out to be counterproductive. And uh, there are some, including me, who would argue that some of what he's proposed in the area of economic relief uh, will not be uh, productive as advertised, things like a temporary cut in the payroll tax. No, and and of course, last night's uh, address to the nation, he said that you know the health care providers, the insurers, wouldn't be sending people bills uh, if they had treatment. And then immediately afterwards, it was clarified that actually no, they would be on the hook. That you know if you survived the virus, they would still ask for an arm and a leg afterwards. And this, of course, points to another piece of undone business, which um, um, perhaps has come home to roost, which is the ongoing fiasco of Obamacare, which is now a a fatally wounded uh, thing, which is dying slowly, but with no um, sign of what it's going to be replaced with. Um, And again, 
there are many ways of addressing this question. But again, in terms of basic security, a government does have a certain responsibility to make sure people can get treated and to make sure that they can go near a hospital without risking bankruptcy. He is Dominic Green. He is the Life and Arts Editor of Spectator USA, contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the New Criterion. Dominic, always good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. And thank you. And I know it's going to be The more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Some new polling out from uh, Yahoo News and YouGov on Americans' attitudes toward uh, the coronavirus spread. The poll conducted March 10th and 11th. So before the NBA suspended its season and Major League Soccer suspended its season, will anyone notice that? More colleges closing, going online, and before the president addressed the nation from the Oval Office yesterday evening. It turns out that most Americans pretty level-headed about it, but there's a caveat. You dig into the numbers a little bit, and it's the level-headedness is being driven by those who identify as Republicans. Only 16% of Americans, however, said they are very worried about coronavirus. Only 16%. Couldn't tell that from the sell-off in the market, right? 41% said they're somewhat worried. So 57%, a clear majority of Americans, very worried or somewhat worried. But the somewhat is, you know, measured. Sure, everybody's a little bit worried about it. 43% not very worried or not worried at all. 44% of Americans believe the threat is exaggerated. 38% said it's not. Well, the 38% must be listening and buying everything that politicians like uh, Washington State Governor and uh, goofy f- uh, former presidential candidate Jay Inslee said about his order to uh, command that you shall not gather with more than 250 other Washingtonians. This is an order. If somebody is consciously avoiding it, there are measures to have legal means to stop that from happening. What are the penalties exactly for not abiding by the ban? The penalties are you might be killing your granddad if you don't do it. And I'm serious about this. Well, you're not a very serious person if you're serious about that. I mean, this is the sort of frenzied histrionics that are unhelpful. Just going back to the polling, larger percentage of respondents said uh, most Americans are overreacting to the actual risks, 36 percent, than are behaving appropriately, 30 percent. They must have been uh, looking at Naomi Campbell's Instagram page where she's in a hazmat suit uh, taking a commercial flight. Ridiculous. Or listening to Jay Inslee. Uh, so 36 percent overreacting as compared to uh, 20, 30 uh, percent behaving appropriately and 20 percent saying underestimating the risk. But it's interesting. So who buys the uh, CNN induced hysteria? Well, the people that are uh, CNN watchers and nod their head when Fredo or Don Lamone speak, I guess. The question, do you expect coronavirus to uh, be in, become an uh, epi- a pandemic which will spread to the entire country? 
28% of Republicans said yes. By comparison, 58% of Democrats said yes. How worried are you about coronavirus? Very or somewhat? 74% of Democrats compared to 45% of Republicans. Uh, do you believe the threat has been exaggerated? Going back to that question. 58% Republican percent of Republicans say yes, only 29% of Democrats. Just on and on, you get the, the gist of it. People on the left are willing to just uh, take whatever the left media feeds them because they recognize them as trusted sources since they have the same ideological disposition, more or less. And uh, people that are center-right are, are less inclined for all kinds of obvious reasons, uh, paying attention to the misreporting and, frankly, just the quality of the reporting, as we uh, detailed in uh, with some specifics today from Jim Acosta and from Don Lamone. I think, uh, you know, those are the people that are sort of in the sweet spot in terms of how you respond to a crisis. This is the Dan Proft Show.